From the home of creative writing on the Internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. It's 8 p.m. at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The big hand is on the 12, and the little hand is on the 8 in the nursery. And in the library, I'm not wearing my watch in case it attracts attention. So, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to Latopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. Tonight, I'm looking for a sexy package. No, not from a library, but more of that later. The package I've got in mind is the book itself. How can authors and indeed publishers package their books and book proposals to give them maximum sex appeal? And I'm delighted to be able to welcome Simon Flynn, Publishing Director of Icon Books, as tonight's special guest on this very topic. I'm now going to make a series of statements. I want you to tell me which ones aren't true. Are you ready? You can go to your local library and take out a person, not a book. Fisher-Price and Disney are selling an electric device to read books to two-year-olds. Popular UK television chat show hosts Richard and Judy are poised to financially ruin the UK publishing industry. If you buy an ebook, your personal information will be coded into the file to prevent you from file sharing. And Harry Potter is to become a set text for A-level exams. Well, guess what? They're all true, and they're all on tonight's show. All this together with tonight's big question, the internet. It's already cut a swathe through a large part of traditional reference publishing. Is it really the author's friend? Or could it actually turn out to be a mortal foe for writers everywhere? Here to help me discern the truth from the YARG are, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Borman, from England's West Country writer and lecturer Dave Bartram, from London, England writer and ARG master Richard Howes, and our special guest publisher of Icon Books, Simon Flynn. Simon, if borrowing people from the library catches on, who would you like to check out? I think it'd have to be Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney. Interesting choice. Hmm. Donna, it's only a matter of time until the first university offers a degree in Potter studies. Uh, do you think JK will sue? Well, of course she will. If any writings analyzing Harry Potter are off limits to anybody but her, then teaching it will be a legal one. Maybe she'll start her own university, like Trump University. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. What a great idea. Dave, uh, would giving away cheese help book sales, do you think? No, I, th I think you should actually make books out of that kind of processed cheese, and then you get rid of the kind of, you know, the, the downloading and selling them on, because you'd eat, you'd, you'd read it, eat it. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool idea. You know, the <laughs> that could be crackers. It'd be great. <laughs> An interesting way of digesting a book. <laughs> 
Richard, Channel 4 will be looking for a new Richard and Judy. If uh, you happen to be the Richard, who would be your Judy? Oh, well, well I was uh, thinking about uh, Judy Bloom, also of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. But perhaps oh, I'd prefer so to sweet. have Judy Garland instead, because what with her being six feet under, she's not going to speak much, and it gives me all the chance to talk as much as I want. Well, you can do that tonight. I'll let's hope you're after dark. Big news from Swansea this week. Uh, where is Swansea, you may ask? Well, as every Welshman knows, it's a city and county in Wales, taking the beautiful Gower Peninsula and the altogether less picturesque driver and vehicle licensing agency of the UK government. The Lonely Planet Guide to Great Britain 2004 edition called Swansea an ashtray of a place and called its pubs morose. That's probably why the residents don't spend much time in them. Instead, they prefer of an evening to go down to the local library. Not necessarily to improve their minds, I'm sorry to tell you, but more for, well, romantic encounters. Nick Parry of BBC Wales plunges into purple prose on the BBC's website as he fancifully imagines a chance encounter in Swansea Central Library. Jack, he writes, was browsing the shelves of the Dylan Thomas section when he spotted her thumbing through Iris Gower's latest romantic offering. Captivated, he approached slowly and slightly awkwardly. A quick glance at her lapel, and his heart skipped a beat as he saw what he was hoping for. A pink badge! The mysterious stranger was also there in Swansea Central Library that Friday evening for Singles Nights. An unlikely Mills and Boone-style scenario, says Nick Parry. But what was once the preserve of the nightclub before pubs, bingo halls and supermarkets got in on the act is now being tried out on Swansea. Once a month, Friday night is singles night at Swansea Central Library. Um, anyone hoping to spot a potential partner can pick up a pink badge signalling their romantic intentions at reception. Then they can stroll the aisles looking for a book, DVD or something or someone else that takes their fancy. Assistant Manager Emma Townsend said this is a different type of singles evening because it's not being held in a bar, restaurant or nightclub. It'll offer many people looking for a partner an environment they'll be more comfortable with. By looking at the sort of books and DVDs that take the fancy of others, it's an opportunity to spot someone who has similar interests. Dave, uh, when was the last time you went to a library for something other than a book? Some, some YARG, perhaps? Um, they don't keep the, the YARG, they keep it around the back. It's the special, you know, you have to give them a nod and a wink. Um, been a while since I've been to a library. That's not true. That's a lie. I was in one last week, actually. Um, no, I was in one last week, actually, um, and I checked the books out through this weird machine that was like something out of Star Trek. It was like a replicator. It was most odd. But no, I've just you got this... this I could have been shoplifting by mistake, actually. That's possible. <laughs> I would have got some cheese. But no... Uh, <laughs> Possibly. No, I don't know. No, not for a while. No, I've just got this image in my head of all these like Swansea natives puzzling themselves over these strange bunches of paper wrapped up in cardboard and wondering what they are. Well, you know, what, what with working in a library, I find all sorts of people when I trawl through the, uh, through the topics. But I can just imagine it. You know, I, I think the best place to go look would be uh, the Mills and Boone section because that's where all the uh, sex staff singles are going to be. You know, you walk okay, up to you, one, you tap them on the shoulder, you're like, oh, I love... And you fancy a bit of a sit down, just the two of us have a little read, and she turns around and her false teeth pop out, and you go, "Oh God, it's Granny!" No, I'm not sure how well that would work and out. That's how it's done. Uh, libraries are being used for all sorts of things. 
David Barker in the Times this week also points out that um, a new library allows readers to borrow people for a 30-minute chat. Um, the idea is simple, he says. Instead of books, readers can come to the library and borrow a person for a 30-minute chat. The human books on offer will include a healthy cross-section of stereotypes. Last weekend, he says, the small but richly diverse list included a police officer, a vegan, very close to my heart, of course, a male nanny, uh, a lifelong activist, as well as a person with mental health difficulties, and a young person excluded from school. What a lovely opportunity for a 30-minute heart-to-heart. I was there, he says, as gay man. In the catalogue, we've been tagged with the kind of negative attributes that readers might expect to encounter. Male nanny was down as twee and child molester. Police officer was filed under corrupt. Mine included, he says, very well-dressed and has some sexually transmitted disease. Though, thankfully, there was no mention of Barbara Streisand. We had to be honest, as a slowish start, spent much of the time reading each other, but eventually the librarians started to pop their heads round the door with readers' requests. And he goes on a very amusing article, actually, to say his first loan was to a uh, Romanian lady who had already borrowed a couple of people, um, and she was on a roll. We launched, she said, into a frank conversation about how much seeing two men kissing in Leicester Square had uh, unexpectedly upset her. We traded impressions that we had of gay people and Eastern Europeans, and politely acknowledged how ill-informed we both were. And then our time was up, and she took me back downstairs to the desk. It was short and sweet, and I realised I needed to know more about Eastern Europeans. Then he went on... um, he was borrowed by a trainee ordinand to the Church of England. That was quite interesting. And finally, um, quite a touching encounter, actually, is two young um, late-teen black guys borrowed him. Um, and he said, as I sat down with them, I braced myself for a stream of invective when one of them gently asked, do you experience homophobia often? It surprised me, he says, to find myself saying yes. And we began one of the most fascinating conversations I've had for a long time. They said that they both had often had strongly anti-gay opinions. I said that if I saw them on the top deck of a night bus, I'd probably go back downstairs. And once that had broken the ice, the conversation became an exhilarating opening of hearts. It was a shame we didn't have more time to talk. 30 minutes can pass very quickly, but I left with real hope. If all young people were like this, he says, I felt the world would soon be a better place. Well, is this um, uh, something that's you know, really uh, a useful way of um, exchanging views between very different people? Or is it just, uh, just I think, another gimmick, Donna? Well, it sounds pretty gimmicky. I, I don't think that borrowing a person um, really is, is very effective. I think you're going to probably attract some people who are lonely and probably some obvious perverts and stalkers. But I think the whole idea of meeting people over books isn't the worst thing. I have a confession to make. Before I met my husband, um, I was a member of a group called Single Book Lovers. Um, it was pre-internet, and we kind of exchanged profiles and uh, corresponded with people who interested us, and it was people who had in common their love of books. So it's probably not the worst way to meet people, but... But I think there's probably better ways than borrowing a person from the library. Now, if I could borrow Pierce Brosnan or Harrison Ford, they'd have something. Now, that's an idea, isn't it? Bor- borrowing a celebrity. Because that would be really great. Because uh, people bring books back to a library in all sorts of states of disrepair. So I'd love to be able to take my celebrity home and drop them in the bath. You just think if, you, if you picked up Pierce Brosnan and Harrison Ford, you'd need the hemorrhoid cushions, the zimmers, all the other kind of stuff they need. At their age. <laughs> oh, give me a break. <laughs> you could be a carer for a night. <laughs> and what a crazy idea that is. You meet up with a bunch of total strangers on some website about books. <laughs> That's bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, none of us would ever do that, obviously. I'd never do that, yeah. <laughs>
Crazy idea. <laughs> Crazy stuff, man. Making friends that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My worry, though, would be if, if you go along to, to borrow a person for 30 minutes and you accidentally go on a singles night and, and you, you take, take this person over for a chat and then you realize that they think that you're after a relationship with them and you, you can't get rid of them. Well, you can get rid so, of them uh, after 30 uh, minutes. <laughs> Least. Sean Murray says, of course, every guy that walked into this fantasy sci-fi section would be given a wide berth by any woman there. I think that's a b- bit biased, isn't it? That's not true. Every, I think every guy I ever went out with, including my husband, um, was a sci-fi fan. So I'd probably troll the sci-fi section, uh, section yeah. if I were single. Uh, that probably troll, says troll more about the fantasy you there. section, surely. <laughs> Copy of Great Expectations, I think. Uh. <laughs> I think it's a great idea, actually. Having had my, my lunchtime in Costas stolen by some weirdo deciding he wanted to find out all about education, um, the idea that you could actually only have half an hour and then tell yeah, him to go away yeah. is much better than being hounded by a rather intense man uh, hassling you about <laughs> education. And Yeah, exactly. It is only 30 quite, minutes, so you could survive that, can't I you? I know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And your coffee wouldn't go cold. Peter, you, you sell books to publishers in 30 minutes, don't you? It, book first so one tries one tries some of some of them are probably not very nice exactly yes but that's um that's the trade secret uh writing in the guardian guardian blog actually um online blog uh, as, as you know if you're a regular listener to the podcast all the references we make here are faithfully recorded by our wonderful podcast officer and uh, very very comprehensive show notes go up after the podcast so um, you know, if you're worrying about missing something or a reference to something, don't worry about it. Just go to the uh, podcast.latopia.com site and you'll find absolutely everything you need, including all links. Um, writing in the Guardian blog this week, Jake Hope gets quite angry about a plan that's now been accepted um, by children's publishers to put um, what they consider suitable age ranges on the covers of children's books, um, uh, of which in the UK there are 10,500 titles published annually. Um, research carried out in um, 2006 found that 88% of people find book buying easy, um, he says, in support of his argument that he doesn't think this is a very good idea. Um, he says, even without age guidance on book covers, 85% of children and 75% of parents selected books from the relevant age group. And he goes on to say that this initiative of, of, of putting suggested age ranges in runs contrary to recent successes in building up what is called in the publishing business crossover, Crossover markets, that's when a book appeals to a very wide variety of readers for titles, such as, he says, obviously, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, Philip Pullman, His Dark Materials, and Mark Haddon's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. These books, says Jake, transcend the boundaries traditionally associated with children's literature and have sparked useful debate about what makes a book for children. Um, he calls it a cynical decision, it's a bit harsh words, um, yeah, just as the second, he says, just as the second national year of reading begins, a time when reading its promotion of the wealth of literature available through so many different formats should be being celebrated. Children's enjoyment of reading in the United Kingdom is already low, he says, in comparison with their global peers. The challenge is to design new, innovative, creative, and exciting access points for children to enter the Republic of Reading, not in finding more repressive regimes and rules with which to further limit it. Well, Simon, what do we think about this? Is it a limiting factor, or is it going to, do you think, tempt more people into, into reading? I think in the short term, um, It'll increase sales through supermarkets and some of the book chains. Well, I think a lot of people that buy gifts, buy children's books to give to children, don't really know anything about children's books. And it's good point. You know, they want to avoid faux pas of buying the wrong thing or at the wrong level. And it's a bit like uh, games and jigsaws when you get that, you know, the jigsaw is for 8 plus or 11 plus. 
that's I'm not saying that's all positive. I think there are a lot of difficult issues, um, and particularly with does the age to do with suitability of content or to do with reading age, and those can be two very different things. Um, does it fit with the aspirational side of children's reading? You know, children like to be seen to be reading something that's a little bit older. Um, are eight-year-olds going to look for the dirty bits in a book that's labelled teens? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I, I think in the long term, it's not going to create more readers. Uh, I think it's going to make life more difficult. Mm. But I think in the short term, where there isn't good book selling in supermarkets and chains, then then I think it will increase sales briefly. Yeah. Donna, is this a patronising gesture or a good idea? Well, I wouldn't use it because I tend to the books first, but I don't know too many adults who actually read children's books. Um, I think it, it would be a, a good thing for parents who are looking for some guidance, and particularly for grandparents and people buying books. Um, I think it's a good idea. Hmm. More, uh, more about the children's book market. Uh, new research from Canada this time. I suspect it's probably pretty much the same um, in most Western countries. Shows that nearly a third of children aged six to ten are regular users of digital audio players iPods, possibly the sort of thing that you're listening to us right now on. Um, companies such as Fisher-Price and Disney now sell kid-friendly digital audio players for children as young as two. Um, and the American Library Association recommends reading every day to children who are not yet in school. The group says it's not just hearing the story that's important, it's connecting the words to the letter on a page and eventually learning to read them. And the association's president, University of Texas professor Lorianne Roy, believes that audiobooks can play a valuable role in encouraging literacy, but they're not meant to be used exclusively. Audiobooks can help the good reader, she says, and the struggling reader, because they help young readers to listen beyond their reading level. But, she says, parents are the first teachers and the best role models if you want the child to be an independent reader, someone who will pick up the text, they're going to watch what adults do. So... Dave, what, what, what do we think about this latest technological marvel? Um, I think it sounds all right. I think people are confusing the idea of learning to understand speech and speak it and learning to read it. You know, hopefully nobody's listening to an audio book and thinking that's going to help them to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be a bit daft, but I think kids like to hear stories. They don't necessarily always want to be reading the book at the same time. I think they should do that also, but... I don't have a problem with that. I think it's quite a good idea. Mm. I, I, I think, think it's a good idea too. Horrible. Uh, I, I think it's horrible. Uh, reading bedtime stories to my kids is one of my favorite things. My God, uh, if parents are going to just shove some iPod in the kid's ear and say goodnight, that, that's uh, it's abandoning your parental responsibilities. But it doesn't have to be an either or, does it? Um, I, I think if it complements parents' reading, it's a fantastic way of getting children to try new books and, and and parents stop probably at the age of seven eight if not before so if this allows them to carry on listening to to new children's books i think that's a i think that's a very positive thing and, and what about as young as two though doesn't that raise some question marks in your mind uh, well i think if you know there is it's down to the parent and how, and how they use it but i think if it complements uh, their reading to them then I, I don't have a problem with it. I really don't. Mm. As long as it's a compliment and not a replacement. Yeah, I think, you know, take that a bit further. I think parents should stop their children watching television and mime <laughs> programs instead to, to engage, you know, the activity that way as well. Oh, or, or just to turn off the sound and, and get them to learn sign language. Yeah. <laughs> Works for me. I, I know too many parents who are going to use it as a babysitter and as a replacement for doing what they're supposed to be doing. I, I don't think that people are going to use it to complement what they're already doing. I think they're going to use it to replace. 
Yeah, it's just another one thing to aid the decline in the family unit. Reba Tuesday says it's good for children's listening skills as well as taking them away from TV and PC. They they paint and draw as they listen or do jigsaws or Lego. And Hope OH says CD books are okay in my view as long as it's not used as a substitute parent. Parents should read to their, their wee ones. Um, a wonderful new book um, just out that I don't know if you'd really want to read to your, your children, but it's certainly intended, it's intended for children. It's called My Beautiful Mommy, and it's out this week. Um, Dr. Michael Salzhauer's written it. It's a heartwarming story dealing with the question that springs to the mind, all the questions that spring to the mind of a four- to seven-year-old when mommy decides to go after the plastic surgeon for a quick nip and tuck. Um, actually, the book deals specifically with a nose job and all the trauma that that might involve for the young child. <laughs> well, I, I was just wondering about this earlier, actually. Uh, not, not this particular issue, but I, I was watching a TV program. In which, Quick nose job. Um, uh, yeah, <clears throat> well, one, of the, one of the characters had a, had a nose job. I think it was Friends and it was Jennifer Aniston. Was it resulting in a... post-traumatic syndrome? None at all. I was just considering the fact that all, all, all the Americans have bad noses and all the British have bad teeth. That's true. Uh, yeah. and <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, what, what is the world coming to that, we, that we've got to sort all this out? And then obviously, you know, you shine these new pair of gnashes at your kid and they're like, oh my God, who's this person? Or, or you turn around and your big conks turned into a teeny one with a little temp at the end yeah I, I can imagine that, that it really messes up kids and I'm sure they, they've all got um, counsellors at the age of five because of whatever problems in their in their family anyway but yeah books about it that's yeah. it, oh, it's yeah. got a lot of coverage this this particular book probably because it's such a, I don't know such an outrageous concept really whether that coverage will translate into sales don't know it's non-fiction though Simon sort of thing you might possibly dabble in <laughs> Uh, I hope not. Um, I, you know, the use of books to understand and come to terms with sort of key events and complicated emotions for children is is, is immense. Mm. But I, I don't think it really would apply to this book. And and it's it's a bit of a shame that well, it's a real shame that um, it's got so much coverage. But um, I can tell you one thing: at the publisher, um, a lot of publicity does not guarantee sales. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope he doesn't sell very many books. Yeah, well, I've kind of got that feeling. I wonder how far they're going to go with it. Whether uh, they have, they're going to do a book for other other issues like Mummy's um, lost her sex drive, so Daddy's seeing hookers, or <laughs> Mummy yeah. and Daddy are on Viagra. Or I feel a series coming on. What can we add to it? <laughs> well, well, you know, and what about my handsome Daddy? Is there anything about men's plastic surgery? Of course not, because men are mostly not into self mutilation. It's it's a horrible book, and it's a it's the worst idea for a picture book I've ever heard of. It, yeah, it's it, it pretty sends close, isn't it? It's pretty pretty close about women and objectification yeah. and uh, what kind of thing are they teaching these kids? You just wonder, especially if it's a little girl, you know, a little four-year-old girl, I mean, she's, you know, I mean, she's going to grow up thinking this is very normal. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. How, how about um, Daddy's had a penis in last yes. <laughs> Oh, thanks Richard. I can always rely on Richard to give us the explicit tag. I mean, well, it would be nice, one, just one of these podcasts not to have to put that explicit tag on, never mind. We will, we'll, okay, well, that, you know, you've done it now. That's opened the floodgates, I'm sure. Well, since we've gone explicit, we could talk about testicular implants. We certainly such. can now, yes. <laughs> oh, you guys are nuts. Oh dear, here we go. Um, but Jenna. Jenna's Lorigami, for that matter. That's very popular in the Outback, I, I believe. Just, I, know, you know, I, I know the publisher who bought that book. I think, think he sold 90,000 copies. Quite extraordinary. Wow. Quite extraordinary. It was the red sails in the sunset that impressed me. 
the guard the guardian reports um that richard and judy and for non-uk listeners to latopia after dark i guess we have to say richard and judy really is sort of in a rough kind of way the uk equivalent of oprah there's always been a sort of a big big chat show in the uk uh for, since time immemorial actually i mean that was really one of the reasons that i got into the whole business many many years ago i was on a, a very well watched program paul wogan which was guaranteed to produce a, a book if you were lucky enough to get the author uh, a bestseller if you were lucky enough to get the author onto it and after that then there was something that people don't really remember anymore now called Anne and Nick uh, and that was pretty good too and now uh, for the past few years it's been Richard and Judy um, every day um, the Guardian says Richard and Judy revealed at the end of 2007 last year that they were to quit their Channel 4 chat show but hinted they would continue to present their book club on the network now they've announced that they are taking the show and the book club to UK TV. UK TV is a satellite broadcaster that not everyone can get by any means. On Channel 4, uh, The Guardian says, they broadcast to audiences of around 2 million people. On UK TV, that figure is likely to be quartered, at least. The implications, uh, says The Guardian, for the book industry are worrying. In 2007, three of the four uh, best-selling novels in the UK were Richard and Judy book club selections. They were The House at Riverton by Kate Morton, the Memory Keeper's Daughter by Kim Edwards, 702,000 copies sold. And The Interpretation of Murder by Jed Rubenfield, 819,000 copies. And as proof of the power of Richard and Judy, I do find those numbers interesting, actually, because if, um, if the viewership is only about 2 million, that's a lot less than it used to be in the old days when, when Wogan ruled the, the, the roost. But if the viewership is only 2 million, um, you know, that's... that's that's a large proportion of their viewers who go out and buy these books. Um, the interpretation of murder offers an interesting case study, says The Guardian. Rubenfeld's novel won big advances from publishers on both sides of the Atlantic, but it flopped in the US, where articles were written on what had gone wrong. Headline, that's a UK publisher, Headline's hardback edition made only a modest impression. Then Richard and Judy came along. Um, so it can obviously have a transforming effect. Uh, the Guardian also points out not everyone loves the club, especially if you're an author who doesn't get selected for it. Uh, when their big read, big summer read comes out, then it's really difficult getting shelf space. And it moves inexorably, the Guardian points out, towards sort of greater concentration of promotional effort behind fewer and fewer big titles. Um, and as evidence of that, they say, from the top 5,000 sellers of 2007, just 37, 37 titles generated half the revenue. Um, and who knows, they say at the end, maybe the Richard and Judy effect may be powerful enough to overturn our assumptions about satellite television as well. Um, Simon, is this the end of publishing as we know it? No, absolutely not. Uh, publishing survived before Richard and Judy. And, I, and you, your point there about how many viewers to how many book sales, uh, I think, is, is a key one because um, I don't think it's the television program as such that prompts the sale uh it's the fact that the sticker and the recommendation or the endorsement by richard and judy is there in the bookshops getting key position front of store people feel confident now because of the books that have been selected in the past that they'll be good reads and they probably never even watched the program yeah 
a lot of all of them. So I, you know, I, whether it really affects uh, sales um, of titles chosen uh, in the future once it goes to UK TV, um, I suppose there's an in- inevitable decline with anything when uh, when it sort of um, you know it continues and it has a long life. But I, I don't think the fact that it's switching to the satellite will really make that much difference. Mm. I, I, I'd imagine that many television viewers are quite lazy and they'll just watch whatever comes on instead of it. They won't necessarily change channel. That would involve picking up the remote and pressing a button and, you know, other difficult things like that. Yeah. I think they'll just, whatever is promoted as the new big thing, that instead of it, they'll watch that. Mm. But in terms of the, the, the publishing effect, I mean, after Judy's famous um, exposure, big bras and like open-fronted blouses didn't become hugely popular, did they? Not with me. <laughs> Maybe what authors need to do is uh, take a copy of the Richard and Judy stamp that appears on the book and concoct their own, make duplications of that stamp, and then go through all the bookshops they can find and stick the stickers on their own books and then just like heave their books onto these, these paths of three for two. That's the way to do yeah, it. A little magic talent. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know, you've never seen Richard and Judy, but, you know, the Oprah Book Club is very similar. Is that, is that the sort of thing that you, you'll be tempted to do? I mean, if Oprah endorses a book, does that mean that you'll, you'll buy it or what? I've never bought a book because Oprah bought it, but um, I think that the book clubs are a good idea for people that don't know what to choose and, and need some advice. Uh, I think that it sounds like they are opening it up over there for maybe another competing book club so yeah. maybe uh, where there's that gap somebody else will open uh, a better one mm. or not actually i mean if you know if it just focuses a concentration on a few bestsellers maybe it's up to publishers now to um you know to get out and sell books in a slightly different way i'm talking about bestsellers in the times again this week john sutherland um, has got a very interesting piece about the history of the bestseller list in the uk he points out that the bestseller lists have been uh, going for a long time actually in the states but in the uk they're quite recent um, Amazon has one, he says, as do Waterstones and, of course, the Richard and Judy Book Club. There's now even a website, www.noveltracker.com, that updates figures and positions of the best-selling books every hour. Um, all will have recorded Dealer Smith's latest cookbook on its way to becoming the fastest-selling title ever. We are fascinated by these charts, he said, but there was a time not so long ago when we had none at all. On April the 21st, 1974, and in this place, which is the Sunday Times, which is writing on, the UK's first definitive weekly national bestseller list was published. Keeping a finger on the nation's reading pulse in this way has been routine in America since the 1890s. Americans love their bestseller lists. Why? Because US society is organised around winners and losers. The UK loathed bestseller lists. Why? Because they were un-English. Books, as we believed, did not compete against each other. Paying attention to a book, not for its quality, but for the quantity it sold, was, he says, Yankee Philistinism. Publishers initially, he says, <laughs> well, I know, <laughs> I'm going to come to you for a comment in a moment. He says publishers were actually very, very hostile about the idea to begin with. Uh, he says the weekly list sounded the death knell for the net book agreement, which uh, some people won't even remember. The century-old retail price maintenance regulation, uh, books are pretty immune to this, actually, that decreed no book could be sold for more or less than the publisher's posted amount. It was the NBA National Book Agreement that preserved what was called the carriage trade ethos of the traditional bookshop. The presiding atmosphere of gentility that the patron, never the customer, felt on going into any high street bookstore in the country. And of course all that has changed hugely. He goes on to point out that 1974... 
Um, the two uh, top-selling non-fiction titles were America by Alastair Cook and The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bronowski, both very eminent, um, distinguished titles. Um, so he says, switch to 2007. Um, the equivalent top-selling hardback fiction is On the Edge by Richard Hammond. And in the guides and manuals, category, Nigella Express is a number two and Jamie, Jamie Oliver, TV chef at number three. And from that, he says, it's hard not to deduce a decline in national seriousness. Um, well, have all these lists and focuses on bestsellers, do you think, Richard, just turned us all into a load of Philistines? <laughs> uh, I must be a Philistine myself. I just, I, I don't get into any you would buy a book wouldn't you if, if it was at the top of the list I mean, or at least you'd be interested yeah yeah uh i mean i, I have done uh when the bbc did their their big read a couple of years ago I, I think the whole nation bought into that we were all very much behind the bbc in what they did there and we all went out and bought our extra harry potters which were at the top of the list uh so i, I think there is a there's a, a time and a place um, it, it's, it's the same with music it's the same with movies TV series but you know we have them now every year every week you know it's, it's the soap ones coming up isn't it the best soap in the world yeah. or whatever yeah. and you I'm know it's, it's, stuff, you? It, it's everything just jumps on the bandwagon yeah. and it's you know, you, you've got to have every week it's, it's a new best this and a new best that. I don't know which best I prefer uh, this, that, that. I, I, just, I can't keep up. Yeah. I mean, all this is an academic argument in a way, because, you know, we, for better or worse, we actually do live in this, this new, high, highly competitive world, relatively new, at least as far as the book industry is concerned. I mean, Simon, um, abolition of the net book agreement, focusing on best-selling titles, good thing, bad thing, inevitable, what do you think? I think it's, it's inevitable if you look across society. We have league tables in schools and universities, yep. so yep. Um, books is uh, not a huge jump um it's a status thing i think isn't it for authors and publishers um helps trigger bonus clauses in authors contracts uh i don't know it's there are so many of them and 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 you're and you're right to say that so few titles dominate them i mean sort of the the range and choice and and it's really what's sold through supermarkets as well that makes us made a huge has really distorted the Mm the whole you know, sales figure. But you, you get a chance to put Sunday Times bestseller on the front of your cover. Do, so. Yes, which helps to feed the buying frenzy, we hope. He also points out in, in this article uh, a scary fact, actually, from the author's point of view. Books, he says, have become, in, in real terms, half as expensive now as they were in 1974. It's not very good news for authors, or even agents, not even for publishers. Um, looking ahead, though, to our, our brave new world, when everything we buy is going to be a digital file downloaded and read on we don't know what, maybe the Kindle, maybe not, maybe something completely strange. Chris Webb on his own blog, uh, ckweb.com, says, I've been thinking about the concept of social DRM, digital rights management. That's what um, the music industry has run foul of in in, in terms of viciously protecting its uh, its rights and stopping people from copying them. Uh, Digital rights management DRM is a big uh, can of worms, really, for the publishing business. Traditionally, books have been sold on on word of mouth. This is not what Chris Chris Webb is writing. We'll come to that in a moment. It's what I'm (laughs) finding. Traditionally, books have been sold on word of mouth, um, and 
you know, if you like a book, then one of the things you usually do is talk about it, and quite often you lend it to um, to a friend or a colleague at work or something like that. In the brave new world, that's going to be very, very difficult to do because um, the act of uh, lending a file is copying a file, and of course that will be, if it's not already illegal, you will be a criminal for doing that. So how how on earth are we going to stop people from copying digital files? I've been thinking, says uh, Chris Webb on his blog, about the concept of social DRM for ebooks a bit more lately. It's a model I believe can work, but I wonder how much is too much information to embed. I think a watermark containing something like this ebook prepared especially for John Doe, jdoe at jdoe.com, is perfectly acceptable, but does that really put enough teeth into it? I mean, if you're not verifying email addresses, John Doe could easily put in something bogus and untrackable. What if, he said, you put in something really identifiable into the watermark, like the credit card number used to purchase the book? So, Dave, what would you choose to embed in your ebook? Would it be a little bit of interesting personal information, perhaps? Oh, there's a good one. I think it should be something... Very personal that only your nearest and dearest would possibly know. You know, an image of, a, of an intimate birthmark or, um, you know, or an unusual scar. And you could actually do that, but nobody's would ever be genuine, would it? That's the problem. Everybody would be claiming the, the, the bigger numbers, wouldn't they? No, or some kind of photograph of your best genital origami pose possibly would be good. <laughs> I think this is, this is a really bad idea. I mean, York, you, you'll be. Yeah. You, you can, you'll, yeah, you'll you can write your, your name uh, in Yarg, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll pick up the phone, you'll, you'll ring your credit card company, uh, can I cancel my credit card, please? And I'll be like, oh, well, why? Could you, could you tell us what's happened? Mm. I lost my book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't go in for, for any of this DRM. You know, I have trouble with having to download off iTunes. I, I, I've got to the point with music now where, where I'm... Once I want to buy some music, I'm quite desperate to have it now, now, now. Mm. Uh, and it's either a case of buy it off iTunes or download it off a BitTorrent. Um, and, you know, I, I do still think, well, if I download it off iTunes and I'm going to have to burn it onto CD mm. and then copy it back yeah, on. It's, it's so not effective DRM. It's just a nuisance, it. isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't actually... It yeah. is. It just gets yeah. But, the, but I even that, I mean, they're moving. Like, you mean, Jobs has gone on record as saying he doesn't want it. He wants to move away from it. So, you know, even they're moving Good. away from it. Uh, at the same time, maybe, is the publishing industry sort of walking rather blindly into it, Simon? <sighs> yes, possibly. Um, it's the new thing, isn't mm. it, uh, um, e-books? Um, whether you can really make any money out of it in the, in the near future, I, I oh, don't know. That's a good um, question. Yeah. But there, were, there is one interesting model I've seen. I don't think this is necessarily a good model, but it's an interesting model, uh, where you download the book for free and... Um, the publisher gets a royalty because the book is um, effectively sponsored mm. by by somebody, uh, by a company. And so you get your 50 cents or whatever it is for, for that download. And the idea there is if, if you're getting something for free, you're not really that fussed about passing it on mm. because you just tell your friend, well, why don't you just download it for free? Mm. So, no, whether that will catch on, I'm not sure. But yeah, uh, uh, In the uh, Daily Mail... Uh, this week. Uh, big news report about how Harry Potter um, has taken his place, they say. Harry Potter has taken his place alongside such greats of English literature as Shakespeare's Hamlet and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, and is required reading for A-level English students. J.K. Rowling's Boy Wizard has been added to the syllabus in a move that's prompted fresh claims of dumbing down in educational standards. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone 
is being offered as a set text by the Assessment and Qualifications Alliance, AQA, the UK's largest exam board, which is responsible for nearly half of the country's exams. Uh, last night, the AQA said Harry Potter is a genuine example of literature of our time and therefore entirely deserves its place in this unit. We believe that it will prove a popular and engaging inclusion. Richard, what on earth do you think about this? Oh, it's too populist, isn't it? I just hate populism. Um, I, I guess the, the point here is that lots of kids read Harry Potter because it's easily accessible. Um, so, in a way, it's a good idea. But when you consider the literature that's out there, uh, I, I, I never got on with the Shakespeare that they forced down our necks when I was at school. Um, so well, it's maybe it's a it's perverse a, plan to put people off reading Harry Potter so they'll move on and read better stuff. Now, that's the point, yeah, isn't could it? Be. That's a really good yeah, idea. Force, fact, that's the kiss of death, actually. Force you to, to study Harry Potter at school. You never, you never read any. You wouldn't never buy it for your, your kids. At least there'd be some proper criticism. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, dumbing down's been going on for years. They endlessly deny it, but it's, it's blatantly obvious. Uh, I think they're missing a trick. If they actually used it as a text, as a part of a sociology exam, that would be quite interesting, mm. you know. As a sociological phenomenon, it's quite extraordinary, and the and the effect it's having, you know, the Hogwarts effect, and these talk of boarding school being jolly good after all, despite all the fagging in the dorms and so forth. Um, you know, I, I think they're, they're seriously missing a trick. You know, it's it's it, it has had a profound effect. I think it would depend on the questions that were set with it. You can have any text for an English exam. It depends how students are questioned about it, really. I think it's as good a piece of literature as anything. I mean, is Harry Potter less of a, a real character than Holden Caulfield? Um, I'd much rather uh, learn about Harry Potter than some of the stuff that was shoved down my throat in school. If this keeps kids interested in learning about literature and reading, why not? Hmm. Yeah, they could just give it to them on iPod, couldn't they? They didn't have to actually read it. They just listen to it. <laughs> I think the problem is it's just um, too lightweight, isn't it? It doesn't really touch on anything serious. I mean, I being, remember being read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, not because it was part of a syllabus, but my teacher thought it was a book I, we should know about. Yeah. And it's profound and powerful and has many you know, things to say about the state of the world at that time and before, whereas yeah. Harry Potter doesn't really say a great deal, apart from the fact that it muddles up a whole bunch of legends with all sorts of... Uh, yeah claptrap and you know wizards with magic wands and broomsticks really yeah, professor alan yeah. smithers agrees with you he's a special advisor at the house of commons educational schools committee he says i i don't think harry potter is appropriate as a set text i don't say i don't see how it fits in with that it may be an enjoyable read but i don't think we're just trying to keep people occupied in the oh, come on what's the great social message of uh, treasure island uh, there's no great social measure uh, message there it's just pirates it just was the first pirate book, really. So that's why people read about it and study it. Um, there's no um, hidden agenda or anything like that. Tom Sawyer, um, I think, is way overanalyzed. Uh, in my view, it's just a fun kids' book, but um, we still have to read it. Yeah, but Harry, Harry Potter can't even claim to be the first book set in a, in a magic boarding school, yeah, can it, yeah. really? Yeah. Or the first one that has a character called Harry Potter in a magical world in it. Mm. Or the first one to have trolls or dwarves or magic wands or broomsticks or anything in it at all, really. How about the first book to have, what, four or five in a series on the top of the bestseller list at the same time, the first book that caused the children's bestseller list to be developed? It's extraordinary, the impact it had. Yeah, but that's one question in an exam. Which book caused the children's bestseller book to be created? Answer, Harry Potter. 
But that, that's not an English A-level question either, is it? Uh, that, well, it that probably be. would be. An it e- will be. It will be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll be multiple choice. Spell J.K. Rowling's name for 10 points. <laughs> Spell your own name for 20 points. <laughs> Touch of cynicism creeping in here. Hope OH says kids already know Harry Potter. This is in the chat room. Learning Shakespeare teaches about the past and politics and another culture. Teaching Harry Potter is redundant, says Hope. Uh, Chonomoto says yes, and Shakespeare has sexual innuendo, making it inherently better than HP. <laughs> mm. Ruby Tuesday has confirmed my suspicion this is actually a plot to put, put kids off Harry Potter. So I hated every book I read at school. I can't read classics anymore. Maybe they'll kill off the love of Harry Potter by teaching it. Mm. Indeed. Um, I'd like to move on to tonight's special guest. And as we already know, it's Simon Flynn, who's publishing director of Icon Books. Delighted to have you with us tonight, Simon. Thank you so much for participating in our general madness. And unfortunately, almost every, and I think not, not almost, without exception, every podcast we do seems to mention Harry Potter. It would be nice to do one or two without mentioning. It's inevitable, isn't it? It is really, yes. But, you know, we've, I think we've got a new challenger to Harry Potter now, which developed in last week's um, hilarious podcast, which is Yarg. You may not actually have understood all our men- of Yarg, but if you listen to last week's podcast, all will become as plain as mud. Um, you have been publishing director of Icon Books for 11 years, and Icon Books is perhaps rather modestly described as a small publisher. These days you tend to think of small publishers as, you know, maybe self-publishers and one-man bands, and actually Icon Books is a lot bigger than that, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it, it manages to stay small because we have so many um, excellent relationships with other Publishers and companies and distributors and foreign rights agents. Okay, now you're part of. So, um, sorry to interrupt. You're part of something called the Independent Alliance, aren't you? With, with other small presses and publishers. Can you tell us how that works? Well, it was it, it was principally founded by Faber and Faber, who, uh, whether that I'm not really sure. You can call them a small publisher, yeah. um, a medium size, and they, over the years, over the last few years, have collected together. Uh, hopefully like-minded publishers uh, such as Atlantic Books and Canongate and Profile and Short Books um, but I mentioned them all yeah. uh, Serpent's Tale and Granta all of whom have uh, terrific track records actually don't they? Absolutely yeah. I mean it, it's a, it's a fanta- fantastic group of, uh, of publishers mm. and um, we've collected together and as a group if you, if you want to think of us as imprints which um, I'm sure the publishers don't want to think of that but uh, the trade probably do um, that makes us the sixth largest publishing group in the country cool. hmm. uh, just behind Bloomsbury so th- there are clear advantages to a small publisher like us uh, and the advantages to uh, uh, the, the collective is that um, the chains and the, and the supermarkets and other um, retail outlets are going to be much more interested in seeing what uh, the Faber reps and sales team have, have to offer yeah. but, but on top of that what I should say is we are an independent alliance and one of the things that we've tried to focus on is working much more closely with our independent counterparts in book selling. So we've tried to um, help them um, by increasing terms or providing point of sale or giving them dedicated promotions or giving them um, some of the, you know, the really big authors, uh, the events that they do will be at these independent bookshops. Right, so, so you, you really look after the independents? Well, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Um, some very good independent bookshops out there. Okay, so uh, now looking at your website, which is www.iconbooks.co.uk, all these links will be in the show notes. Um, it, you know, you cover a vast range of uh, non-fiction um, subjects, don't you? I mean, there's there's a whole introducing series, which looks vast. It's got a huge, great spinner here. It's introducing every possible subject you can think of, introducing Aristotle, introducing 
uh, Pythagoras introducing the universe, uh, a lot of psychology books, literature, history, philosophy, politics, sociology, cultural studies. I mean, massive. How can you sort of um, represent the range of books you publish to us? Is there any, any number you can, you can give well, us? Well, in total, the number of books that we do. Mm. Is, is that what yeah. you mean? Um, well, we publish probably about 50 a year. Okay. Um, and I, I, I think our backlist must be 300, 350, something like right. that. And you also do the Fighting Fantasy series too, don't you? Which, of course, is, is not non-fiction. No, no. Uh, we do have a children's imprint, uh, Wizard Books, okay. um, which principally is Fighting Fantasy. We, we've tried to do other children's books, but we've, we've struggled to make it work, to be honest. Okay, so why is it that you've always focused on the non-fiction area? Well, the reason the company started in the first place um, was the Introducing series that you mentioned. Oh, okay. um, and it was originally called For Beginners. Uh, so it was, like you say, Einstein for Beginners, Jung for Beginners, Freud for Beginners. And uh, that was really the reason for the company. Um, and uh, for the next sort of seven or so years, we tried to concentrate on series because if you can make a series work, it, um, it's financially, a, you know, it's a backlist, it's something sure. that ticks over year after year. Um, and that's, that's what we thought we were good at, yeah. but it didn't always work. And uh, probably about seven years ago, we decided to get into more one-off titles. Um, and our first big success was Why Do People Hate America? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. What was, what was yes. the answer? Uh, why do they people... Read, well, read the book, he says. Read the book, I should think. It was a complex answer. Yeah. It was to do with cultural studies hmm. and, uh, you know... Um, Cultural imperialism, uh, I, I guess. Um, was that a bought-in title? And, I think it was originally published in the States. Uh, no, oh, no, you no. That, didn't you? We originated right, right, it. Um, in fact, I think it was a, a boozy, boozy lunch over a, a fellow director and, and the author one one day, right. saying, "You know, we we must there must be a, you know we must there must be something that we can say about all of Classic this." So. Publishing lunch and endangered species. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Right. Yes, um, and and we've always tried to stick to things that we feel that we uh, have some sort of handle on yeah. um and we've been now with faber for about six years and i think we've learned a lot a lot from being with them as well so you know you can probably hopefully see a, a compliment between what we publish and what they publish yeah now i say you're a very brave person you've got um, all your sort of key names and uh, perhaps after this podcast you may even change it but you've got all your key names and email addresses actually available on your website so you must be absolutely bombarded with submissions aren't you uh yeah it probably is a mistake actually uh I thought you'd change it. <laughs> of course and of course my biography is completely wrong on that um yes uh to be honest we don't we, do, we don't get too bad uh the, the number of uh, and most people seem to go through our generic um email address so it's not it's mm. not too bad and, and you just never know what you'll what you'll find you'll never know what what piece you know what interesting book comes through so, so uh, you are i mean are, are you are you brave enough to go on record as, as saying that you know the the submissions that come in by email actually do get looked at directly by you no, directly by me no i can't promise that mm. uh, some do, some don't um i you know <laughs> i don't want to invite trouble no, uh, exactly. <laughs> like very very few uh will really get taken seriously and and it's almost sheer chance and luck particular one will just get looked at properly yeah so how do you go about deciding what you're going to buy well uh yeah well it's not an exact science um and it can never be um i mean it's, it's, it's trying to be objective as we can but there's always a lot of subjectivity in that mm. um but we ask a variety of questions um of a book um not all of which are applicable to every book and so obviously the first question is what's the book about but oh, that's a it's a ridiculously obvious but following on from that quite quickly is does it have an obvious hook or an interesting backstory yeah. there's something that immediately makes it stand out now that could be a number of things um just to say on the backstory bit um there's a book that we've we picked up recently that uh 
another publisher had let go, but they'd originally paid a six-figure sum for. Mm-hmm. And because they changed over the years, the book was late, they changed over the years, they, they felt they couldn't publish it anymore. So we've picked up a fantastic book. Um, and that's, a, that's given us a really interesting backstory because it's not just our credibility on, uh, on the book, it's another a well-known publisher's credibility too. Um, but also important is can it be explained quickly and easily? Uh, that's that's absolutely vital. If if you can't explain what the book's about in less than two minutes, then yeah. it's depressing. But that's what happens in a bookshop. Absolutely. When a, when a book is sold in a bookshop, it's probably got a maximum of two minutes in front of a buyer, and they'll be making their decision decision pretty quickly. They've got a lot of books to look at. The the sales rep isn't just showing your book, or um, so it's got to be something that can you know that sort of there's something there quite quickly. Um, now that can be. Um, a very good title and subtitle. Sometimes that can do a lot of the work. Uh, uh, we've got a book coming out called uh, "Groovy Old Men: A Spotter's Guide," and hopefully that oh, you know in itself, you know, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I think you are in it, Peter. Oh, thank you. Um, I'll see you. That, that, <laughs> okay, Donna. Anymore. Uh, but you know, instantly it's it's given you a smile, hasn't it? Yeah, it, sure. It, yeah, it's uh, that, that, I, that. You know, it's the definite picker up of that, is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's done some work. It's done some of its own work. Um, if it's by a successful author, well, that's a, that's an obvious thing. Yeah. If you could say that there's something that the author is bringing to it, um, but you don't always have that luxury. Um, and it's really thinking of those few lines that sort of sum it up and hopefully grab the attention and grab the interest of the buyer. But it really is two minutes. Mm. So, um, how do you like to be pitched to? Uh, well, it's it is good to get stuff from agents um, because they are very good at putting together the proposal. Where, where if you can't make your decision from that, then you probably can't go ahead with the book. Uh, agents are important. Um, sometimes we come up with ideas for books, and then we go looking for the author. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be an author we've used already before, or maybe um, that we go to an agent and say. Do you have a possible author for a book on this subject? Mm-hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, your your affinity for the independent book trade. And I can quite understand that actually. Um, but I mean, you know, people have been raising a lot of question marks over the future of the independent, but they've been doing that for some years, and they're, they're, and they're still around. But um, I mean, what are your feelings about that? Are we going to be seeing the independent bookstores slowly wither on the vine, or is it going to be with us in, in the next decade or two? I think, I think those. Those independent booksellers that deserve to, to survive probably will survive. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that there won't be some that deserve to survive go by the wayside because of uh, one of the chains moving into their area. But I think mm-hmm. there are some excellent booksellers out there, and I, I partly have to say that because <laughs> my wife is one. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's I think there's definitely still a role for an independent bookseller. They understand their local community community much better than a, a chain does which is working from head office mm. what they can't compete on is is price um but i think that you know i think with the way people are about other things in their lives like organic food and uh interesting produce and that sort of stuff i think they can i think you do get uh people who support their bookshop even though they know that their local bookshop even though they know they're going to be paying an extra four pounds or something yeah. uh, I, I hope i mean maybe i'm being idealistic i i I hope and expect that the good independent sellers will survive. So, Simon, the internet's impact on publishing. Some publishers think it's going to be their, their saviour. Other publishers um, are very undecided about it. And indeed, you know, the whole market for certainly electronic products has 
well, it's supposed to be our future, but um, I can see some big question marks there. I mean, how does the smaller publishers such as yourselves see the internet? Is it an enormous opportunity to steal a march on the bigger publishers who are perhaps not very flexible and can't think quickly and not adaptable? Or is it actually um, uh, a bit of a threat because it can consume so much of your own time and resources? I think it offers uh, some excellent marketing opportunities. Uh, and you can be very creative and and hopefully, and, and also for targeting niche um, audiences as well, it can be a fantastic tool. And also for spreading word of mouth. Um, word of mouth is constantly talked about in publishing because it really can make a book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you have more opportunity or a different opportunity perhaps um, with the internet to do something like that. Um, I think it must, must hit the reference book market quite heavily. Mm. With the sort of books that we do, I hope it doesn't really affect it at all because what you're getting is um, a packaged and specific uh, story or uh, yeah. fiction um, uh, book, which which has been through the editorial process, has been through the you know that that is that has come through being an attractive or interesting or fascinating or original or provocative or whatever it is uh, book at the end of it. So the, uh, the internet really has has you know sort of decimated a lot of reference publishing as, as you say um, mm. I mean how you know how is it possible for the author and the publisher to resist that kind of universal pressure because you know let's say travel publishing for example I mean if you want to find out a play about a destination a place you're just as likely to go on the net find out from Wikipedia maybe look at some, some travel blogs as buying a travel guide so what what's your response to that that surely is a bad thing isn't well it? i i think you're right that if, if you're investigating a just to use that travel idea if you're investigating where you want to go then the internet is a fantastic tool and but would you i'm not sure whether you would have necessarily bought a book on that in the first place if you if you were investigating i think if once you make your choice i think people still buy books because uh, books are so portable and so you know, carry it on the plane, put it in your bag, just flick through. It's a, it's a totally different experience from yeah. from re seeing something online. You, I see. I mean, you do sell off your website, don't you? You feel that that's actually on balance. What is it? Is, is, is a positive thing? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a very. We, we don't push it. Um, we don't make a big deal of selling the books, and it often surprises us how many we do sell off that site, especially when mm. it's. If you're going to our website and you're going to pay full price, albeit you get free postage, why did you not go to Amazon? <laughs> um, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's incredible. It's uh, we, we had a we had a tie-in book with a, a BBC a short BBC series last year about um, quantum theory about oh, yeah. the atom. That was, that was uh, and, quite famous. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it got uh, it got a, it got a shown at the end of the uh, end of each episode, and and of course it went shooting up Amazon, but it was still staggering how many we actually sold through our website. And yeah, you, know, you have to find it on our website it's um do you know why i mean were people linking through to that specifically linking through maybe from blogs and stuff or is that just a mystery i think well i think you're probably right actually i think there must have been there was something that was prompting it something specific that was prompting it that there was but that shows again doesn't it that shows the website if you can if you can get that sort of yeah. web uh, web effect and you get that sort of link through then it can it can make a difference well now let's bring this right right back to to the authors who you know really most important people in it really mm, arguably apart from the readers um i mean the author's role in once you know once you've decided you're going to go for a book you've, you've commissioned it the contract's been done whole thing goes into production and it's out there it's launched so what's the author's role as far as you want expect and need in terms of actually marketing that book i mean is it thank you very much for this and we'll go and sell it now ourselves or do you, do you 
really need them to get involved and if so how? It, re- it really does depend on the book um, but um, we do try to work very hard with the author hmm. and if it's a if it's a story if, if the book is about uh, something which is uh, which is a relevant story which is a news story where the publicity is beyond the review pages then the author is absolutely vital and integral to to that promotion of that book right um, so Sorry to use examples all the time. No, but, um, please, actually. It's, it's very useful for us. Well, we, we had a book at the start of the year called In the Red, which was a, a diary of a recovering shopaholic. Um, so, you know, it was New Year, New You, <laughs> seeing how this person yeah. had uh, got into so much debt and then had kept a diary from then on was trying to get out of that debt. And the author is integral to that story because that story is is about the author. So the, we got incredible publicity. Um, I, don't think it was, I don't think it was reviewed anywhere, but that just goes to show that reviews aren't the be-all and end-all. Hmm. Um, got incredible publicity, got on TV and so on and so forth. And so in that instance, um, the author was uh, an absolute vital part of the of the marketing or the publicity of that book. Uh, another, more perhaps more traditional um, non-fiction title, we're doing one about called The Devil's Children, which is about children who murder hmm. um, other children, which obviously is not a, <laughs> not a very nice subject, but still an important and fascinating one. Hmm. Um, the author is going to be, well, actually, probably in that sense, will be will be will be useful, but not as useful as in the case with a diary of a recovering shopaholic. Mm. I think I think you have to. It's a case by case, but but we do try to work with the author as much as possible. Now, what about this um, this trend we've seen um, over the past? Well, it's, it's you know, it doesn't seem to be slacking off. Actually, in some ways, it's getting bigger and bigger. Certainly, in terms of the money, uh, just recently, a week or two ago. First-time author, blogger, three hundred thousand dollar book deal. I mean, what what do you think about this generally? Do you think it's a false friend? Books turning, uh, blogs turning into books, or is this something you're actively looking at right now? Well, do we actively look? Um, I think if if one of our if one of the people in the company is is uh, we're not actively looking to turn a, any blogs into a into a book, but that doesn't mean if we don't come across a blog in our own time or mm. ever and we think wow that could really make a good book i mean that's the beauty of publishing is you it's not a nine to five or nine to six job you're you're, you're always thinking about it whether you're just reading the newspaper isn't that the truth yeah yeah so you know we've got a book out next month and it was because of reading an article in the times last summer so really? how, did, how, tell, uh, how tell us about that <laughs> well uh um there was an article in the times um and I just need to probably say that I don't often buy the Times, but anyway, there was an article in the Times uh, last summer about a, the French, a French, a bestseller in France, which was a surprise bestseller, um, which was essentially a, a workbook, a holiday workbook for adults, hmm. and it was described in the it was described in the in the article as a revision guide for parents for adults, so you know, which they read over the summer, so that when their kids went back to school, they they were you know they knew what their kids were going to be learning and knew you know because you forget it all, don't you? Yeah. And uh, thought, what a fantastic idea for a book! Um, hmm. But uh, you know, did it? You know, that was just an inspiration. And um, now we've created this. It actually turned out this French book was thirty-two pages and was just a list of quizzes. <laughs> <laughs> but our, and our book is now eighty thousand words and four hundred pages. And you know, there is there is no similarity. But um, that's interesting. Now you've just described something that's got sex appeal. That's a very, very interesting. I mean, what what was it that I know you're going to tell me it's six cents? But when you read that article, you know, something just went off, didn't it? In, in your head, and you thought, mm, "I can go for that," and that's that yeah. magic secret ingredient, isn't it, that you're always looking for? Absolutely. Mm. Um, I should just point out, I wasn't the only one. There are three other publishers with similar books coming out. <laughs> oh, really? 
<laughs> just those guys to shine that, doesn't it? We've been talking on Latopia a lot about titles. I was wondering how important titles are to you when somebody's pitching. Uh, they can be very important. Um, uh, they can really, well, I gave the example with Groovy Old Men, um, which sort of just instantly you, you feel positive <laughs> towards that towards that book. Um, oh, I hope you do. Because um, I'm married uh, to one. But. Yes, oh, yes. Well, I'm aspiring to be one, um, which means I will be one. But um, they are important. But having said that, we've had process. We've had books which have been uh, being being sold to um, the trade, and because of feedback we've had from the trade about titles or covers, and in fact, the book I was just talking to Peter about about the um, the, the one for the, the sort of uh, revision guy for parents. We originally had a title called Summer School, which we, to be honest, weren't very happy with, uh, and it was because of one of the accounts saying. Uh, brilliant idea, can't stand the title, um, that it got changed to match wits with the kids. Hmm. So that's, that's, it, that's sexy, that's sexy, a nice sexy package. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And so, so the title is important because it, it, it can sell a book quite quickly, mm. it can help sell a book quite quickly, but it's not the end of the world. If it's not, if it's not right, then probably half the books in our catalogue have had the title they have right from day one and half we've had to sort of think about that. Hmm. Okay, here's a pitch. Celebrity drug taking and how to survive it. Uh, and it's set out with chapters on celebrities that have recently died of uh, drug overdoses. Uh, we got start off, obviously, with Heath Ledger and his uh, yeah. drug binge and obviously vomiting to death. And then move straight on into the, um, the recent children's presenters, Mark Spates and, and his girlfriend. Obviously, this is in completely bad taste. But I think if we pitch it to the 14-year-olds, we can get them before they get, get on the uh, drug ladder. Uh, that's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting pitch. <laughs> have, have you have you got a title for it? Uh, no. Uh, anyone want to, to pitch in with one? Uh, I'm needling you or something. How <laughs> about snort if you want to go faster? <laughs> that's the coke, please. Well, if Amy Winehouse can get a million pounds, I reckon we can get a bit for this. And obviously we're all going to share I th- it. I think one pitch could be Harry Potter. You need to know magic's a load of old toss. <laughs> uh, for, uh-huh. for young children, just to actually debunk the idea that this stuff is real, because I think there's a lot of kids out there who believe this stuff's real. Well, if you, get, so if you can get an A-level in it, obviously it's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can get a degree in Klingon. Yes, but it is, uh, yeah, it is a, uh, yeah, an artificial language, yeah. Whether it's real, I suppose it's real if somebody speaks it, like Welsh. If you well, must. there are all sorts of artificial languages, aren't there? Esperanto. Well, one one mm. could argue that they're all artificial languages. I guess. We all sat around a campfire going, Ugh! and then started people, you know, started a different grunt for a different thing and before you know it you've got Richard and Judy <laughs> people pointing oh. at Yarg <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the beauties of Yarg is it does actually seem like a grunt doesn't it really um, <laughs> Yarg <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of an ejaculation isn't it Yarg <laughs> enough Yarg there's never enough Yarg I'm working on a polemic I want to know are polemics really dead not at all no no uh, what, what you have to be careful about is whether the polemic uh, follows a subject that's been covered a, mil- a million times before. So I think people do get a bit desensitised to some things. You know, uh, another book, just to take an example, another book on Iraq, unless there's something mm-hmm. really, really something that stands out, the author or something, that would be a very difficult book to sell. Uh, another book on America actually would be difficult to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's trying to get there quite early on. Um, but definitely polemics are not dead. That's good to hear. 
we started out by asking a question tonight about the internet, and we've discussed quite a lot of different aspects of the net. Um, and we were posing the question, is it really the author's friend, as it's supposed to be, and all authors ought to be out there blogging all the time, or is it actually a mortal foe for writers everywhere? So let's go around and see if opinions have changed or modified. Dave, what's, what's your view on this? I think, uh, like everything that's come and gone, it will just become an integrated part of the range of mediums that are used to communicate stuff. It's big at the minute, it'll settle and other things will creep back and move along and it'll become part of the continuum. No, nice piece of perspective there. Donna? Well, I think the internet's going to be really useful, particularly for non-fiction authors to sell books. Um, when my book comes out, which is a writer's guide, I'm going to certainly develop a website and try to um, sell to writers using the website. Uh, I think it's going to be very helpful. And Richard? Uh, as a, a, a non-published wannabe, um, blogging is literally ruining my writing life. Uh, That's an interesting point, actually. I mean, blogging can, you know, if you blog every day and you're supposed to, I mean, it's, and what, how many words? 400, 500 words? I mean, that's, that's a good slice out of your productive time, isn't it? It is, but particularly if you're working as well mm. and you're trying to think about what you're writing and you're stuck with a mental block about where to go next. It, it's just far easier to blog about some load of rubbish Mm. Uh, than actually get on with your writing. And then, you know, there are so many blogs. I mean, I, I don't read blogs directly anymore. I look at their RSS feeds, and if there's anything interesting, then I'll, I'll, I'll maybe look at the article, which means there's an awful lot of words out there that ain't going to get read. Simon, finally, um, your, your views now about the internet. Author's friend, publisher's friend, or...? Well, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? It's like nature. It's neither, it's neither friend or foe. It's... Um, I think I think used, used wisely, the internet can be a very positive thing for authors. Um, and... Uh, regarding the issue of blogs, I think you can have a good blog, but not feel compelled to have to fill it in every day. Mm. Do you blog actually? No, I don't. But then I'm lazy. <laughs> so uh, no, I, I, I'm not a very public person in that sense. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I find all this uh, Facebook and and, um, yeah. and I find that a bit um, anyway. Yeah. Not, not my cup well, of tea. Um, I want to thank you very much for being our guest. I, I do forgive you for calling me an old geezer. Oh, what, oh, actually, what was it? What was it you call me? Groovy old man. Oh, sorry. Thank you as a compliment. Oh, yeah. I'm losing my mind already. That's what happens when you go. Um, thank you very much. Shave the beard. Shave the beard? <laughs> Sacrilege. <laughs> You're one of the people telling you to grow it. Um, Simon, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Simon Flynn, publishing director of Icon Books. You have also heard uh, this evening from Dave Bartram, Donna Ballman, and Richard Howes. I've had a lot of fun. Hope you have too. Why don't you join us all again next week and we'll do it again then. Thanks. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Well, that was the show, and this is the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. 
We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. On the website, podcast.litervia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do, it looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page, or you can use the handy feedback form again on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email, and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at litopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers, and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox, thanking you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. (laughs) 